So we are continuing in our series on life of David. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Um, get ready for an exciting lesson this morning. We are going to take in a lot of Bible in a short amount of time. And I've been working hard with the tech team this morning to make sure that all the information that I want to uh, get out will be able to com be communicated clearly because there's more than meets the eye uh, as we look at this passage. So we're going to pray for divine efficiency and clarity. So Jesus, we thank you for your word. We love to grow. We love to just walk more closely with you, and you've given us your word to do that. So fill us afresh this morning. We commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we have one of the most uh, important chapters in the Bible. Um, not only do we have David, the greatest king of Israel, uh, leading a consolidated kingdom for the first time in his kingship, he's also moving the ark to Jerusalem, which is one of the most significant and prophetic acts in the Old Testament. Now last week, Alex uh, help set the stage for us with his message as we walk through how this great moment of national celebration was unfortunately interrupted and came to a screeching halt with the death of Uzzah, who was judged by God for trying to keep the ark from falling off the oxen cart. Now, we're going to come back to this in, in just a moment. Uh, but after three months, uh, David discerned what they did wrong and then they were successful in bringing the ark into Jerusalem. The second bringing in of the ark, there was no interruption, no tragic mistakes, only success. So here's how the scripture describes this joyous scene. David went and brought the ark of God up from the house of Obadiah to the city of David with joy. And so it was that when those carrying the ark of the Lord marched six paces, he sacrificed an ox and fattened steer. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his strength. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with joyful shouting and the sound of trumpet. Now they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent. Now next week I'm going to develop more how revolutionary this was, what David was doing. We can read this passage and we can kind of gloss over it. But there are some really, really important things that are shifting here which I'm going to touch on more next week. But David pitched the ark under the tent, uh, and David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Now, to give us a, a little picture of how artists have imagined what this looked like, um, here's um, a picture. There's many different ones out there on the web, but I thought this was a, a wonderful one. You have David just dancing with great jubilation, completely liberated, and you see this great uh, procession. In this next slide here, which the tech team will be queuing, um, I thought it'd be fun for us to see kind of a representation, possibly, of what this dance looked like. And um, this is a, a picture of a professional ballet dancer from the conservatory at Dusseldorf. Uh, he got born again, and he went into the priesthood, and so he recreated David dancing before the ark and inspiring people to worship God with all their hearts. And uh, here's a picture then of the ark being pitched under a very humble tent. So um, this was, again, a very sort of unique situation where God allowed this holy object to be brought into the city and then placed under this tent that David had pitched. 
So the whole nation was rejoicing with David, but there was one person that was not happy about the situation, and that was David's wife, Michal. So in verse 16 of chapter 2 Samuel 6, we read this, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. That's a pretty strong word. Not just, no, she wasn't that great about it. No, she despised him in her heart. Now, David must have been more than excited to go home and share this historical moment with his wife, only to find that Michael was in a very sour mood. She was appalled at the king's behavior, didn't like the way that he acted in leading the procession. So then we get to go into this private conversation and what it transpired between David and his wife. So David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David, said how the king of Israel honored himself today, sarcasm, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible. In the NIV, it says, even more undignified. I will be abased, humiliated in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. So what we get from this passage here is, number one, Michael was offended by David's dancing. Number two, she didn't like it that he did it in public. Number three, he was lowering his status as king in favor of the, in front of the nation. And number four, he was embarrassing her in front of all her maids. Okay, King David, maybe you could have done a, a happy little jig in your private royal study. But in front of the whole world or out there in the public square, so much emotion and unbridled excitement, how unbecoming. You should have been more presidential and more composed. It would have been like Prime Minister Trudeau or President Biden dancing in the front pew in the chapel service before their inauguration. It was cringy and disconcerting as far as Michael was concerned. She was wanting to show off her husband, the new king, her trophy husband to the world like a girl wanting to show off to her gal pals, the professional athlete or tech millionaire that she landed. But instead, David messes it up by dancing wildly. Now, in many ways, this is a heartbreaking scene because Michael was very special to David. She was the daughter of Saul, and she was the one that truly loved him. Originally, the king had given Michael's oldest sister, Merab, to marry David, but she was given to someone else. She was the one that helped David escape their home in the middle of the night when her dad's secret service came looking for David to kill him. She was the one that put a household idol under the sheets with goat's hair and covers to make it look like that David was in bed. And she was the one that let him out of the window as the troops were trying to find David. 
So they shared some very special moments together. And later when David became king over Israel, he specifically asked for Michael back after she had been given to another man. So David loved her deeply. But now she could not enter into this moment with David because he embarrassed her. And the Bible says that from that point on, she could not bear children. And this is quite a statement. In other words, this was not the time to have a bad attitude. She was on the wrong side of the window. While David was looking up to God, she was looking down on David with despising thoughts. But here's the larger point. Michael was not offended with David. She was offended with the gospel. And that's the focal point of my message this morning. Are you offended by or are you on fire for the gospel? Now, David had a supreme passion for the glory of God, and which was represented by the ark. He wanted to show his joy and excitement by dancing. He wanted to break out some moves in public so that the whole world knew that his love for God was above his title. David didn't mind that he lowered himself in front of everyone because the real king in this situation was not him, but the king of kings. He was not afraid of embarrassing anyone. In fact, he doubled down in his conversation with Michael. You think I embarrassed you? I wasn't embarrassing enough. I will all the more be undignified. I will all the more humiliate myself. That's zeal. That's passion for God. And that's what God each wants each of us to have, is to be undignified and undone by our love and excitement for God and who he is. I really believe in these last days, and we're in these last days, that this is the kind of zeal that God wants us to have as the people of God. We can't cool off. And the Bible says in the last days, there is going to be a chilling. There is going to be a cooling off. But the Bible prophesies there's going to be a heating up of the church. There's going to be a greater zeal, a greater passion. And this is so vividly demonstrated to us in this scene with David. That's what God wants to put in your heart and my heart. Now what David did in moving the ark was not just something ceremonial, like a finishing flourish to his united kingship. This was an earth-shaking, paradigm-shaking, history-making event. This whole event later would become to known doctrinally as the tabernacle of David. This was a prophetic shift from Moses' tabernacle, the law, to David's tabernacle, the doctrine of grace, which I'm going to touch on more in my message next week. But to understand David's excitement, we need to go back into the weeds and retrace our steps in the story for a moment. Now, we know from the earlier part of this chapter that Uzzah was killed by an outbreak of God's judgment. At first blush, when we read this, we're taken back by God's anger. I mean, Uzzah was just trying to help out. He meant well. He wasn't trying to disrespect God, just the opposite. He was trying to keep the ark from falling to the ground and breaking. Why was God so severe? One important thing to know in interpreting this scene is that God never acts disproportionate to the crime. God never acts disproportionately. He is always just. He's always perfect in his judgment. So why did this happen? What was Uzzah's mistake? Well, we know that the ark is the holiest of objects 
in Moses' tabernacle. And God said, if anyone touches it, they will die. Numbers 4.15, you can look that up. Anyone that touches it, they will die. That's why there were poles in the ark, so they didn't have to touch it. It was the only place on earth where God concentrated his full character. As such, it was dangerous for anyone to get near it because no one could handle such holiness. The ark was where he vested his entire glory and his entire purity. Now, Isaiah got about a small taste of God's holiness when he saw God high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 6. Right? We remember that scene. When he sees the Lord, he says, woe is me, I am ruined. And he just got a little preview of what the holiness of God looked like. Moses, he hid his face and took off his sandals when he saw God's holiness. And this was but an encounter with a bush on fire. The prophet Daniel, after fasting, the Lord comes to visit him. And he sees Jesus in this theophany, in his glory. And Daniel describes what happened to him when he saw the Lord. He said, in this great vision, there was no strength that was left in me, for my complexion turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. When we see the holiness of God, even from a distance or even but for a moment, it causes ruin within us. Our human circuitry cannot take the holiness and the glory of God. Now, as a side note, this is why we're going to have a new body when we go to heaven. Because our physical body as it is could never take the glory and the weight and the power of heaven and who God is. So here's the analogy. The holiness of God is like taking hold of a power line. No matter how well-meaning a worker may be in wanting to store electricity to the neighborhood, he will get killed if he grabs hold of the line in a wrong way. It has nothing to do with his intent, but everything to do with the power in the line. The line doesn't say, oh, I won't shock you, don't worry. I know a few hundred households are without power and they need to get the heat back on in their homes, so I won't electrocute you. It doesn't work that way. We conform to the line. The line doesn't conform to us. And so this is in part what happened to Uzzah. It wasn't just that his intent was wrong, but his understanding of God's absolute holiness was deficient. And thus God broke out on him. An important part of this discussion also revolves around whether Uzzah was a Levite or not. Some commentators say he was, and thus incurred this severe judgment because he should have known better how to handle the ark. But if Uzzah was a Levite, then David would not have gone to the trouble to reboot this entire situation with only Levites. Because he said in 1 Corinthians, I mean 1 Chronicles 15, because the Levites did not carry it out at first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us. Thus, it's clear that Uzzah was not a Levite, and his death was more the result of ignorance than arrogance. But the question still remains, was there any way that David could have prevented Uzzah's death? Was there any way that David could have known that the ark was in being improperly transported? The answer is yes and no. The answer is yes, in that David could have been more careful in searching the scriptures, David himself admitted, again in 1 Chronicles 15, 
He said, we did not seek God according to the ordinance. So to his credit, he owned the situation. However, there's a no part to this situation. Why David did not think to search the scriptures. Realize that prior to Uzzah's death, for 350 years, the ark in the tabernacle and the high priest resided in a city called Shiloh. When Joshua brought the nation across the Jordan approximately 300 years ago, he placed Moses' tabernacle and the ark and the furnishings of the priesthood up in the city of Shiloh. So in this graphic that I'm going to bring up for you here, I'm just going to voice over this so that you can, I can walk you through. I'm really pining for my whiteboard where I can get up to it and point to it, but we'll just use what we have right here. So in this picture, you have a very simple diagram. The green line represents when Joshua brought the people of God into the promised land. That's called the central campaign. After their victory there, they went into the south. That's the red part. And after Joshua had settled the land, Moses' tabernacle, which was given to him by his mentor Moses, they settled the furnishings and the Ark of the Covenant in the city of Shiloh. And Moses' tabernacle and the Ark and the priests resided in the city of Shiloh for 300 years. So Shiloh represented the spiritual center of the nation. Thank you for keeping that graphic up. But as time went on, the priest's zeal for the tabernacle waned to the point that their love for God's house just became a flicker. So you have generations of priests that are supposed to be taking care of the ark, but as time went on, their love for God's house began to grow dimmer and dimmer. And this is what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 4. When Eli was the high priest, Recall that Eli was the mentor of the little boy Samuel who would later become the prophet that anointed King Saul and anointed David. Eli held the high office of priest, but he had little zeal left for God's house. So much so that he let his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, corrupt their priestly duties by eating the sacrifices that the people brought before they were offered to God. And he allowed his sons to fornicate with the women that were in the temple. The Bible says that these were worthless men and their sin was very great before the Lord. The idea of powerful men having sexual indiscretions with their staff is as old as dirt. And this is what happened with Saul's, Eli's sons, pardon me. But the worst part is this. Eli did not correct his sons and did not uphold the tabernacle, I mean the standards of the priestly office. So God had to judgment. God had to judge them. And this is where the ark come back, comes back into the picture. So Israel was at war with the Philistines and they were losing badly. So they came up with this idea. Let's take the ark out of the tabernacle and bring it to the battlefield because then we know we're going to win. This was a horrible misuse of the ark, as if it was a rabbit's foot or good luck charm to turn one's fortune. But the fact that Eli and his sons did not stop Israel from doing this shows how badly they had abdicated their sacred duty. They should have yelled at Israel, you don't do that with the ark. 
You don't take it out into war. It's not an artifact to be used like that. You're profaning the sacred. But Eli and his sons didn't do that. And that represented a massive break in the nation's understanding of the ark. So the ark went into war, and you know what happened? Their plan failed miserably. 30,000 troops died that day, and the ark fell into the Philistines' hands. Now, we don't have time to cover how Dagon, their chief god, fell before the ark, and its head and its feet were cut off, and tumors broke out against the five Philistine lords for seven months. But the Philistines became so scared of the ark that they sent the ark back to Israel. And here's how they did it. They sent it back on a cart pulled by an oxen. Does that ring a bell? Let's bring up the next. This is a, just a, a picture of the tabernacle when it was at Shiloh. And I've just put a little frame on the Holy of Holies. And this is where the high priest would minister before the Ark of the Covenant. And as you see in that picture, the poles were attached and inserted into the rings that were attached to the Ark. Now Moses told the people, never take the poles out of the Ark for two reasons. Number one, it was a picture that the people of God would always be on the move and always be ready to move with God. But number two, the poles were there so they, they never had to touch it. So let's look at the next picture there. So this represents what happened. Um, the ark was at Shiloh. If you look at that top red arrow just to the right of it, that's where the ark was for 300 some years. The military says, oh no, we're losing against the Philistines. Let's take it out into battle. So they took it out into battle at Aphek and Ebenezer and thinking that they're going to win the war, but instead the Israelites are defeated by the Philistines. So then the Philistines are, this is our victory. This is our spoil from the battle. So they take the ark and they take it to their cities, to Ashad and Ekron and Gath. But when they take the ark there, these tumors break out on them and they're so petrified, they say, we got to send this baby back. So they send the ark back and it comes to this city called Beth Shemesh. You see that there in the second red arrow at the bottom. Now, the Israelites were so excited to get the ark back, and a whole bunch of them started to look into the ark, which was a big no-no. The Bible says 50,000 people were killed because of their wrong curiosity. And so the people of Bethlehem said, okay, we need to send the ark to some people who really understand how to handle it. And it ends up in this town called kiriath Jerium. And that's where the ark ended up for 20 years, separated from the tabernacle of Moses. Thank you. Time-wise, this all happened approximately 50 years earlier before David was born and before David became king. So just keep this map in mind that the ark now is in kiriath Jerium. From that moment when the ark was lost to the Philistines and had its 20-year layover, the institutional memory of how to transform transport the ark by the poles upon the shoulders of the Levites was lost for an entire generation, 50 years. All because Eli and his sons didn't protect the ark. They severed the priestly knowledge that should have been passed down. Hence, the last picture that Israel had of how to handle the ark was the picture that was left to them by the Philistines. 
So by the time that David wanted to move the ark, which we see here in 2 Samuel chapter 6, there was no one in the land, no one among the priesthood that could stop David and said, wait, time out. This is not how you do it because no one knew. Now to David's credit, he did the best that he could. He thought he was following protocol. He actually was quite careful in his decision to move the ark from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. He polled all the leaders before the event. First Chronicles 13 says that he consulted all the leaders, the military leaders, the elders of the tribes, the priests, as well as the people. He checked all the boxes. He built a national consensus. Proverbs 11 says, in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. And this may be the reason why he didn't inquire of the Lord, as Alex pointed out to us last week, since he felt he had done his homework. But King David did not know that he was flying blind. He didn't check the scriptures because he thought the priests he consulted would have held that knowledge. But they didn't. So they end up moving the ark in the way that they had saw it done last, by a cart and oxen. And unfortunately, David, so, pardon me, unfortunately, uh, Uzzah died because of it. And yes, David could have prevented all this, but his systemic checks failed him because the priestly institutional memory was gone. And Uzzah became the tragic cost of that institutional gap. Which brings us back to this point here. So that was a bit of history for us. A move of God was upon the nation. David was determined to see this through properly. He had it in his heart to finish the job and put the ark under the tent that he had pitched. Which begs this question. How did David dare to even separate the ark from the tabernacle? I put a little X mark over the symbol of the ark in shallow because it's not there anymore. It's literally separated from Moses' tabernacle. And it's residing in Kiriath-Jerim. So maybe David should have thought, I need to restore God's order and bring the ark and put it back in Shiloh where the tabernacle is. But that's not what he does. Instead, he has this impulse to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Why did David make such a big deal of capturing Jerusalem? Why did he want to bring the ark there? Why didn't he bring up the ark to Hebron where he was there for seven and a half years earlier when his reign started? Now, geographically, Jerusalem was the highest point in Israel. So I know you can't see this, but this is purely for my own fun. This is a relief map, a geographical map, which shows the terrain of Israel. And when you lay it flat like this, you can see the highest point in the land of Israel is in this Judean mountain range where Jerusalem is situated. So, you know, people of importance like to live in high places. And uh, we have actually Psalm 120 through Psalm 124, which are called the Psalms of Ascent. In other words, three times a year when Israel had their feasts, the people would have to ascend to get to the place of Jerusalem. So David chose this highest point. Of course, there was also the military advantage of living in a peak position. One of the other, other interesting things about this relief map is that the Philistines lived in the lowlands. And that is a sermon in and of itself, how the enemy lives 
in low places. But going up to Jerusalem and being stationed there would have given them a great military advantage. But besides the natural advantage of the terrain, there was a compelling spiritual reason why Jerusalem was so important to David. Jerusalem was the site of Mount Moriah, which you recall from Genesis 22, is where Abraham offered up Isaac. So Abraham loads up his donkey, brings his son Isaac. God tells him, I want you to go up to this mount. In Genesis 22, it describes how they were making their way, and Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw they were where they were to go. He lifted up his eyes because he saw the ascent. He saw Mount Moriah, which is where Jerusalem is. But as Abraham was sacrificing Isaac, God stopped him, and God told him that he would provide the ultimate sacrifice there. Now get this. Can you believe it? In the sovereignty and orchestration of God, Mount Moriah is exactly where Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years later. God was true to his promise to Abraham that he would provide the ultimate sacrifice. In other words, Jerusalem had to be the epicenter of redemption. It had to be ground zero for the reconciliation of mankind. Thus, prophetically, the ark had to be where the Son of God would ultimately die. That's where the glory had to be. The government of God, the fountainhead, had to be established there. Jerusalem is God's eternal spiritual headquarters. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. David was establishing on earth the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, Jericho is famous, Hebron is famous, Shiloh is famous, but none would compare to Jerusalem. David literally put Jerusalem on the map. The very first time that Jerusalem becomes famous is in this chapter. Prior to this, you don't really hear about Jerusalem. It's only referred to as Jebus or the city of the Jebusites. But in this chapter, this is where Jerusalem is put on the map. The ark, the glory of God, needed a city. And Jerusalem was it. And this is why David went crazy. This is the gospel. God's story of redemption is worth everything that we have. Michael, his wife, completely missed what God was doing. She was just looking on, down on David, thinking, oh my goodness, he's just making an embarrassment of himself, humiliating himself. She had no understanding of what God was doing in that moment. She wanted respectability, but God wanted abandonment. And David was that in spades, possessing embarrassing excitement for Jesus. Are you offended by the gospel or are you on fire for it? You connect this scene to the New Testament and we realize why God instituted Pentecost with fire. It's about having zeal for God. We're going to be celebrating Easter here in three weeks. And by the way, Bonnie Henry has given us the indication that we might be able to have at least some partial in-person service on Easter. There's been a lot of complaints by the pastors. There's been a lot of pressure building up. And with the infections going down and the vaccines rolling out, she said this week that we're hoping to open up the churches for Easter. 
understanding that this is our high holiday. So hopefully we can have some people in person on Easter and get the ball rolling once again. But 50 days after Easter, there is Pentecost. In the New Testament, that's when the Holy Spirit was poured out as tongues of fire. The zeal was poured out. Why do you think that John Baptist said of Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire? Why does the Bible say of Jesus, zeal for thy house will consume me? Right in John chapter 2, he goes in the temple and he sees that they've turned what was supposed to be a house of prayer into a house of merchandise. They had completely lost their focus as to the culture of the kingdom, as to the priority of the kingdom. All they cared about was getting themselves wealthy. And so Jesus overturns the tables of the marketers. And the Bible says that it was his zeal that consumed him. Now, where did this phrase come from, zeal for thy house? You guessed it, David, Psalm 69, 9. So we look at this chapter here, and we can just read through it quickly, but there's so much that's in it that's meant to stir our hearts. Are we a Michael or are we a David? Which side of the window are we on? Are we wanting respectability or are we ready to embrace abandonment? Michael's attitude towards David is really about wanting religion on our terms. We want to be spiritual. We want to be close to God. But we don't want to be too extreme. We don't want to be too radical. We don't want to show our emotions for goodness sake. Now, one of the things I'm going to point out next week is in Moses' tabernacle, there was no music. It was dead silent. God did not give Moses the pattern of instruments. God did not give Moses the pattern of worship, of singing, of cymbal, of, of, of stringed instruments, of dancing. And David brought something radical to the nation of Israel. He brought something that was so new and unexpected. And so the people are like, can we do this? Can we actually do this? There's no priests. There's no tabernacle. There's no brass laver. There's no altar. And yet we can come to God because God doesn't want us to bring the sacrifices of animals. He wants us to bring the sacrifice of praise and worship. So David began to institute something very powerful, which later on in Acts 15 was called the Tabernacle of David. This is the reason why you and I can have zeal. This is the reason why you and I can get excited. This is the reason why you and I can jump up and down more than a Canucks hockey game or a football game. We jump up in our living rooms and we're watching the TV and some exciting thing happens to our favorite sports team, but we tend to be very reserved. We hold back when we're worshiping our God or in our service for God. The world's not going to be shaken up and the world's not going to be changed by us just sitting back on our heels. Rather, God wants us to be like David. So God, we look to you right now. We ask for a fresh stirring to come upon us. We ask, Father God, that you open our eyes to the full meaning 
of the glory of God, the presence of God, the ark, the government. Lord, release the fetters and the chains that keep us from freely entering in and dancing with all our might as David did. We don't want respectability. We want abandonment. We love that you have opened up the way that the, the veil to the Holy of Holies has been rent and we get to be face to face with you. Lord, in these days where it's easy to get cold, to be chilled, to not go online, to not go to Bible study, to not pray because those are all things of obligation, that's completely the wrong understanding and perspective. Stir us afresh, God, that you draw us by your love, by your sacrifice. We bless you and thank you. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Yes, Lord, there is no one holy like you, Lord. And we just come to be awed and overwhelmed by your presence, Lord. You know, as, as Rich was, was speaking, you know, he was talking about Michael sitting in the window. And, and the first thing that came into my thoughts was, why was she in the window and not down with the people? Why was she not with her husband? Why was she not with the other leaders of the nation? Why was she not down near the ark? And, and we see in her response the pride, the, the separation that she has created between herself and the people. And I think that's really a symbol of everything that God has come to break between us. We see that he, he brought his presence into the ark to be less separation between us and him. Jesus eventually replaces the priest class so that there's less separation between us and him. He becomes man so that there is less separation between us and him. He rips the veil in the temple so that there is less separation between us and him. And so everything we see in the Bible and everything we see in this story today is about God removing the separation between him and us, restoring what we broke in the garden. You know, Rich pointed out, like, the people were freaking out. Where was the bronze lever? Where was the, the basins? Where, were, where was the tabernacle? And instead, they had brass instruments. And what we have to remember is, all of those sacrifices, it, it wasn't the blood of the animal that was saving them. It was a shadow of what was to come when Jesus would ultimately save them. And so I just feel, you know, if, if there is a point of pride that is holding you back, that is separating you from God, you know, you, you don't want to dance in your own house in worship, that you don't like to sing loud because you fear your own voice, that you don't like praying out loud because you don't feel like you know how to pray. I really feel that God's just telling you to put down that pride, to, to lay that at his feet and to trust him. That I, I think every person that's ever stood in front of a stage and told people about God would say that the first time was weird and it was different and praying out loud is hard and it sounds weird in your own head and you constantly Rich, John and I talk about like you come, you step off the stage and there's a thousand things you're like oh I was going to say that and I didn't say it and I feel like I messed up and those thoughts are going to come but that is not God, that is the enemy and so 
we need to put down our pride and let nothing come between us and him because he let nothing come between him and us. So Lord, we just thank you for today. We just thank you for the word that Rich brought. Just we thank you for the events that happened thousands of years ago but are so important into our life that they built this this beautiful story of explanation of how we screwed up and you have constantly come back to us and you have tried to restore us and you are going to restore us into what's going to come that you have thought so far into the future that you have prepared new bodies for us to be able to stand in your holiness that we do not have to fear touching the ark because you will have given us a body that your holiness will be throughout, that it will be permeated, that we will once again be the original man and walk with you in a garden just as Adam did, Lord. We just thank you. We just pray this week, Lord, that you would just bring to our heart the little things that separate us from you, that you would lay those on our hearts and that we would just lean into them, that we would just pray into them, Lord, that you would you would teach us how to move around those things, those fears, that pride, the hubris that just holds us back, Lord. Pray this all in your name. Pray that you guys would just have a wonderful week. Be blessed, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks.